Welcome to the Bible Archives, and today we're mostly doing chapter 26, but uh, chapter 25 is one of those that, that doesn't necessarily uh, break itself up well, and so we're going to hit the end of 25 that we started in the last episode, um, and that's going to help segue us to what's going on in chapter 26. And chapter 26 kind of acts as its own, uh, its own narrative. It's, it's really the only section that we get that is primarily about Isaac, um, but even poor Isaac, it really just sets up what's going on with Jacob and Esau. So at the end of chapter 25, we are introduced to these two brothers. Um, they're apparently twins, but, but the, the emphasis is on who's born first. And it's the birth of these twins that's going to set up one of the longest chunks of narrative in Genesis, with, which is the Jacob narrative. So we're going to look at that. We're going we're gonna to glamorize Isaac one last time. And, and then we're going to see what happens with him and how that implicates what's going to become of this covenant and this blessing with Jacob and Esau. And this story of the birth, um, this is one that, I mean, this happens a lot in Genesis. It happens a lot in the Bible as a whole. It happens a lot in any sort of history that's being written. Trying to distinguish um, the, the historical just facts from the emphasis of the story is something that we have to continue to pay attention to. And I know we brought this up in our introduction to Genesis, but this this part here of the end of 25 is a good example of this. Yeah, I always find those parts of these stories interesting. And so I want to state right out at the beginning here that I depended heavily on the scholarship of a theologian. Her name is Susan Nittich, and she's a professor of religion at Amherst College. Her main focus is on literary narrative and the folkloric themes. Um, By finding those cultural norms, sometimes it's easier to understand what the writer might have been trying to say and how sometimes manipulating those particular elements shape the story, like shape a new story out of the old one. So I, I think that it's kind of like the way we may have a story like the, the ride of Paul Revere. Everybody knows the story of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. Well, we know Paul Revere was indeed a real person, and we know that he did, in fact, take the ride. But then Longfellow wrote a poem about him, you know, listen, my children, and you may hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. And it's like that story is kind of like a, a legendary story. It's not necessarily the whole facts. It's also got things added to it. And that's okay, because that's part of who we are as a nation. That says something about our identity as a nation. And I think that these stories very much um, kind of present the trajectory of the history of the nation of Israel in kind of a narrative form. And this separates the difference between uh, memory and meaning you know there there is an importance of like how did this happen what are the historical facts what are the details um but a lot of times when somebody writes about something they're not just trying to present history they're also trying to present how it ought to be remembered and what it means for us now and that's not a bad thing Mm -hmm. Uh, we it's worth saying we do this with our own lives all of the time we impart our our understanding of an event on the event itself so this isn't a way to say that, well, see, the Bible's not historical. Um, in, in fact, a lot of the things being mentioned here, you know, these places, these themes, these ideas, these actions, you know, they, these are actually pretty normal. Um, but then the meaning imparted on the memory 
helps us understand why it's important. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. that's what that's what we're seeing here um, with with the birth of uh, Jacob and Esau. And this is coming out of um, sort of the tail end of Isaac's narrative where it's breaking up um, what happens to Abraham's sons and you get these genealogies and there's the whole thing with Ishmael. And then we kind of start Isaac's genealogy. And this happens at about verse 19 in chapter 25. And this genealogy is portrayed as a story. So genealogies throughout Genesis are always ways to um, kind of create a scene change. And that's what's been happening in chapter 25. But Isaac's genealogy is way different. And it still uses some of the same uh, genealogical themes. Like it even begins the same way. Like these are the descendants. Abraham was the father, 40 years old when he got married. Um, Then it mentions Rebecca's heritage. But then it goes in verse 21 into this narrative of this barren woman, you know, just like Sarah was barren. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Rebecca conceives. And that's all part of the the genealogical scope of telling about Isaac's sons. Um, But it's also going to kind of ambiguously weave its way into this story at the same time. So that's what we're seeing here. Now, the the first thing to notice about this description is um, um, Rebecca's barrenness, and yeah. that is just like like Sarah. Yeah. Um, and we've we've brought this up several times because it is a motif that shows up in the Hebrew Bible often. Um, barrenness is a curse, and so <clears throat> when somebody is barren. That, that's not just they can't have children. It's that their legacy can't continue. And for a woman, unfortunately, they don't have as much value to offer. Yeah. So Rebecca, who's been this absolutely honored character so far in the story, this is a big deal. This also came up with Abimelech's uh, sort of consort that they all became barren. And this theological issue, and, and we did bring this up in the last episode, is that the curse of barrenness is kind of accorded to God. And we find out that Isaac prays to God and the barrenness is lifted so that Rebecca conceives. Mm-hmm. And it's just worth bringing up this issue of this curse and that it needs to be, be prayed for. So therefore, does Adonai actually cause this and if so that should cause a problem for us so if you want to know more like you want to explore that more we handled that specifically in the last chapter the outcome is that adonai does overcome the barrenness and i think that's actually the point you know barrenness is a major concern right it's the concern in the ancient world Mm -hmm. and oh look the the god of israel is capable of overcoming that concern i think that's the point they're trying to make. There's the theological side effect that maybe they didn't consider. But her pregnancy then becomes very unusual. And picking up in verse 23, we we sort of meet these uh, children and we get this poignant poem almost over them. It's, it's kind of like a vision. It's kind of a prophecy. It's kind of a blessing. Um, but it's a way to describe the the intensity of w- what's going to be the narrative that will follow. And this this line, uh, this little poetic structure, does set the context for really the next 
what, like eight chapters. Yeah. Um, so, so this is a huge, huge moment. And remember, it's taking place in the midst of this genealogical scene change. Um, so starting in verse 22, it says that the children struggled together within her. Okay. So there's, there's twins apparently. Um, and she said, if it is to be this way, why do I live? Poor woman. (laughs) Probably an honest articulation of that experience. So she goes, she goes to inquire of Adonai and, and the, the response of this is, is this poetic blessing and vision prophecy thing. But this, this idea of, so she went to inquire of Adonai is, is, mm-hmm. is something that we should pay attention to. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this isn't just a matter of, well, she prayed about it. Um, Rebecca is probably interacting with what sometimes you could call family religion or household religion. A lot of times, for example, the people who wrote down and redacted the book of Genesis were very monotheistic. They were temple-oriented. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all the Israelite people necessarily had that kind of uh, religious practice. Often they um, had kind of their own form of Yahwism. And sometimes that involved having cultic objects, household deities, different rituals in their household that center around the daily life of the family. So archaeologists have dug up the homes of average Israelites, and they'll find little corners with cultic objects in them, or they have evidence that these things happen. And they tend to be involved with things like birth, um, food preparation, healing, dying, all these different rhythms of family life. And that's just what we're seeing here. So probably what she did was went to see an oracle. And um, she wants to know what's going on. So she goes to this oracle, and that's when she gets this message that you're talking about, where um, there is this story that says, well, it's what an oracle says in sort of a poetic way. Um, almost maybe like a riddle. There are two nations in your womb, two who struggle in your bosom, but one will surpass the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So we do have in here kind of like a a motif of of that kind of idea of she's kind of checking out what the local oracle has to say. And this is something interesting about Genesis is that it kind of gives us a purview into ordinary life um, or or common common concepts of ordinary life Mm -hmm. within the ancient world, which... Most historical texts from this time period, you don't get any of that. You, yeah, no. you, you mostly read about kings, conquerors, rulers, etc. Mm-hmm. So Genesis does portray some of these items that aren't seen elsewhere. And it's really fascinating to see how archaeology has helped uh, shed light on some of these stories, but how both of them together shed light on the ancient world as a whole. Sure. So you get this, you get this oracle. Um, and again, that, that line, verse 23 really helps set the stage. But but then uh, the birth happens. And uh, we read that the first came out red mm-hmm. and hairy, which is an indicator of just what the word Esau means. Yeah. And um, this is eventually going to lead to the nation of Edom, who's going to be one of the surrounding Gentile foreign pagan groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, a theme that you've seen in Genesis is uh, meeting Israel's neighbors with their origin stories. Yeah, and definitely. Esau's one of them. The second child comes out gripping the heel of Esau. That is going to set up this oracle that we just got of which one's the older, which one's the younger, and this antagonism that starts between the two all, all the way back here. 
Um, we also, in verse 26, get a detail that, that's just important to point out for the, the sake of the literary structure, that Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them, which is just a common thing that you see in genealogy. So they're maintaining the geneolo- okay. genealogical, genealogical structure. Okay. Mm-hmm. The boys grow up, and you, you hear this next part of verse 27 through the lens of Cain and Abel, Okay. Esau was a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the field. Jacob, in contrast, is quiet. He lives in tents. So you start getting this field versus tent, civilized versus nomad, but it's a little bit more ambiguous than it was with Cain and Abel. But still, there's this older brother, younger brother, very different. Their lifestyles aren't necessarily aligned. And that's going, that's going to, to come into play as this narrative continues. Um, but specifically, you get this emphasis on, on gender roles and, and not necessarily like sexual um, denotation, but Esau is kind of like this hunter warrior figure. Jacob is not. So you think back to Nimrod in Genesis 10, um, Esau's kind of taking on on the the archetype of of him. Jacob takes I, I don't necessarily want to say feminine characteristics, but that is how it is portrayed. That that Jacob has the more um, household role in the family, and even his skin reflects that. And that leads to this line of I, Isaac loves Esau, but Rebecca loves Jacob. The difference, though, is that Rebecca, it just says, loves Jacob. Esau is loved with a qualifier, and it's because Isaac liked game. So it it starts off going like, oh, one parent favors one kid, the other parent favors the other kid. But there's this added layer of, but Isaac's connection with Esau is what Isaac gets out of it. Rebecca doesn't seem to have that with Jacob. That's true. So that... That's all setting the stage for, oh, there's going to be uh, dissonance mm-hmm. between these two. And it started started from the moment they were born. Yeah. And this goes right along with some of those folkloric motifs that we see of an underdog. In this case, a younger brother who is interacting with a patriarchal or hierarchical society. Um, this underdog or younger brother motif has a common folkloric pattern. And this would also be called kind of the hero's journey. So you have an unusual birth, which we see family rivalry and conflict, um, a journey away from home. And we'll see that at the end of this, uh, Jacob has to leave because of his rivalry with Esau. And then how he finds success in his new environment. But then what's unusual about it is a lot of times in other folkloric stories that the resolution of that conflict ends in some kind of violence. The younger brother either kills the father or the older brother or some kind of beast that he's fighting with. In these particular stories, and it kind of makes me go back to the beginning of Genesis where we had the the violent creation story of the nations surrounding them with the more, um, you know, straightforward or less violent story of of God just speaking his word. In this case, there's an actual resolution. So I don't want to give the whole story away as we move along through the Jacob narrative here, Mm -hmm. but the story does happen where it's more of a of a resolution of the um, conflict because of the maturation of the character, which in this case would be Jacob. As opposed to somebody killing somebody else. Yeah, it's like, think, yeah. you know, think Star Wars where you've got, you know, Luke and Darth Vader. This is not that kind of a story at all. But, um, yeah, and then even going back to that whole thing with uh, 
with Esau and Isaac, there's kind of almost like a caricature. They almost become a characters of each other, where one is like a caricature of the male and one is a caricature of a more feminine man or, you know, womanized, womanized in a sense. Um, and, yeah, it's like Isaac has a specific reason he likes him. It's because he provides something for him immediate, as kind of a, a sense-oriented or material way of, of you know, providing for his father so that's why he likes him the best Mm -hmm. it is at this point in in genesis that and it's going to continue in like joshua and judges and samuel and kings starts feeling a little bit uh like game of thrones Mm -hmm. uh and and that's not just because of the content of the story but also just how like there's these archetypal figures and everybody's kind of playing a role but then one of those gets subverted and that helps add to the story and that's something that Genesis does all the time. I mean, think back to the flood narrative, you know, using a common motif and subverting it. Um, so this this all kind of culminates with what we're also seeing is Rebecca is taking on a more important um, role in the story. It becomes a more important character than Isaac. So again, Isaac is kind of in the background here. Now that's going to shift uh, for, for one brief moment in chapter 26. Um, but then... Tucked at the end of chapter 25, and and really this section should probably have been its own chapter. You know, whoever broke that up, I I don't necessarily agree with it. But um, you get this narrative uh, that's a little bit more common about Jacob and uh, Esau and the birthright. And the first thing to know is it's a birthright, which is different from the blessing, Okay, those are going to be different stories. Birthrights are just you know, dealing with inheritance. Every family had one. Um, the blessing of the father also deals with um, family hierarchy and inheritance, but more importantly here connects to the covenant. And those are, those are separate. So uh, Jacob is cooking. So again, household archetype there. Esau comes in from the field, warrior hunter archetype, but he's, he's famished. And that detail is intentional. Um, If he is a hunter who has just come in from the field and he is famished, and you have to remember, hunts are not necessarily just like walk out to the woods, shoot something and come back. They're usually very long endeavors. Usually you would catch or eat something smaller while you're hunting for larger game in order to sustain you. So when he comes back famished, there's... I'm not saying this is in the narrative, but there's reason to go, "Eh, maybe he's not that good of a hunter. (laughs) So Esau goes to Jacob, who's, who's again, doing the household thing. He's cooking. And um, the actual, uh, different different translations say this differently. Um, But one of the ways you can read this next line in verse 30 is, let me eat some of that red, red stuff. And again, there's a connection to Esau, red, Edom means red. And so, you know, the word Edom shows up here and it's kind of pointing to the nation that's going to come from Esau. But more importantly is Esau's kind of portrayed as this very crude, low language, you know, figure, which is contrasted with Jacob's very clear, articulate speech about the birthright. So if you're reading this, you get the sense that, you know, Esau is is very hyperbolic, is is almost childish in how he's, I'm so hungry. And um, Jacob goes into this almost very clean description of uh, almost like manipulating Jacob into giving him the birthright. 
And this goes back to Esau's the older, but the older will serve the younger and the younger seems to be ahead of the game. And it's definitely portrayed like that. The outcome of this is that Esau sells the birthright for a bowl of what would be terrible lentil stew. That, that's what this was. I, if you've ever cooked lentils or had lentil stew, it is nothing to desire. It's not good at all. And Jacob sells this birthright or, or receives this birthright from a person who is apparently about to die because he's so hungry. And this is the first real uh, description of Jacob as a deceiver. Yeah, here he comes in as the trickster figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it, it's slightly subverted because we already know that he has sort of like a divine dispension to do this because it's already been predicted that he's supposed to be the one ahead. Otherwise, you know, he just comes across as kind of this manipulative, sly guy who's going to slip his birthright away from his brother. But, you know, it doesn't look like his brother appreciates it very much because he practically swallows down that stew like he didn't even care. So... And- and the names here, again, are important. So yeah. Esau, referring to this, this redness, Edom, mm-hmm. um, it's a very crude name. It's just a basic description. Jacob is literally the word deceiver or deception. Um, and, and so when it, when it says like Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, uh, you could read that the deceiver gave Esau bread and lentil stew and so his name is, he's living into that name. The name is very intentional, and that's going to keep coming up in the narrative. But also, you see this been by Jacob, who is, it seems, quite intelligent, who's using that as a means of self-preservation. Jacob is not a character to emulate. And the way that he is just looking out for himself and using his ability to ma- manipulate in order to get his way is the the dominant theme of his life and his story. Now, he does throw in some bread with the stew, you know, at least that was a very kind gesture. But compare compare how Jacob interacts with a famished person with how Abraham does in Genesis 18 and the hospitality. Jacob's not waiting at the tent. He's inside cooking. He doesn't offer the food to the famished person. He, it has to be requested. And then he manipulates through that request. He gives barely enough. And then he doesn't send Esau on his way with anything. In fact, Esau just goes his way and then despises the birthright as a reason. So, so the hospitality was actually Jacob stealing, using what he had in order to get. And that's setting up the character of, of Jacob. So that's going to dominate a lot of the, the text to follow. Now it's here that we, it, we almost get um, as an aside. Okay. This is going to start chapter 26 and it's one of the only Isaac narratives. And even in that, it's still just replicating an uh, Abraham motif. And it just sits right in the middle of the Jacob Esau conflict. It's, it's almost like the authors of Genesis went out of their way to make sure Isaac got no attention. We're going to just diminish him in every way possible. Um, but this this text sits here also to play a role in developing Isaac's character, in connecting Isaac with Abraham, 
and then in connecting Isaac with his children and what's going to follow. So there's a lot that's still going on here, and it's worth paying attention to because this is one of the main descriptions we get of Isaac, even if it is really similar to um, Abraham. But it also surrounds this sister-wife motif that we've been seeing. Well, this is the third sister-wife story that we see in Genesis. And we saw the first one in chapter 12 uh, with Abraham and Sarah in Egypt. Then the second one was in chapter 20. Again, it was Abraham and Sarah, this time in Gerar. And now it's Isaac and Rebekah, and they are also in Gerar. Um, There are some common denominators to these sister-wife stories that kind of go like this. The people are in a foreign land. They have to decide whether to stay there or go there. Um, there's always the beautiful wife who the husband is afraid that he'll be killed because of her, because of her beauty. And so he will tell her, please say that you are my sister, or he will claim that she is his sister. Um, and then usually the foreign leader, whether that's the Pharaoh or the king, in this case of Abimelech, well, you know, then they take them into their household, but then somehow some kind of a curse or, or, or dream or something comes to the, the leader, and then they understand what's happening. They recognize the fact that this is a wife, goes to the patriarch. Patriarch says, well, I was afraid I would be killed. So, um, and then they often leave with wealth accumulated. There's conflicts with children surrounding the stories, covenantal language, sometimes on the outer edge of the story, or sometimes in this case embedded in it. And then we get a well motif. So what we have here in chapter 26 is it's a little bit like the story in chapter 12, something like the story in chapter 20, but I would say chapter 26 and chapter 12 are more connected than, than 20, which kind of stands alone. Because 20, there's really just a, a similarity of characters. Yeah. Um, but the actual events of the narrative reflect the earlier, the earlier motif more. Is that yeah, what you're saying? Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what it says. Uh, you know, for example, there is no famine in chapter 20, but both in chapter 12 and in tw- chapter 26, it even says there was a famine in the land, not like the famine of Abraham. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and in both of them, that's what drives them to go to this new yeah, place. Yeah. yeah, they're supposed to go to a new place. Uh, in chapter 12, Abraham and Sarah go to Egypt. In chapter 26, God specifically tells Isaac, do not go to Egypt, go to Gerar. So he's now in the land of Abimelech. Um, men start to notice Rebecca, so Isaac tells him she's his sister. The only difference here in this story is in the first two, the woman, in that case, Sarah, was taken into the household of the leader. In this case, Sarah or Rebecca is never really in any kind of that kind of danger. Abimelech sees the two of them together, recognizes the fact that they are not brother and sister, and he just goes to Isaac and says, "Why did you do this to us? Why would you tell us that you're her, that she's your sister?" Um, you know, and then Isaac says the classic response, "Well, I was afraid because I was afraid that I'd be killed," um, and so, you know, that that kind of motif is sort of the same. Um, it's hard to say even sometimes why these sister-wife stories are even told. Um, there's been some different ideas about them. Some people say that these are remnants of diplomatic marriage. So whether because Abraham and Isaac need to go to a foreign leader and try to negotiate with this stronger person, they don't have a daughter to offer, so they kind of offer their, their wife as a sister. I kind of don't really agree with that. I think that these have more to do with maybe kind of fertility motifs because we see this connection to children, to wells, to land. So, I, you know, that's what I would say about these particular stories. And it also 
presents the the characters as um very strong uh they they threaten the the kingdoms of wherever they are it's how they accumulate as you said mm-hmm. um but in some cases too it's they always surround some sort of birth so yeah, that that tie to fertility and in some ways it does seem to and maybe this is a side point that they're making of hey and the children that you just read about or are about to read about weren't born you know from Abimelech or the right. pharaoh in Egypt um uh, just a way to like cover the bases mm-hmm. of that stuff yeah um so they do play a role and particularly here the the connection of Isaac with Abraham with the covenant and then the the narrative of the covenant that's going to follow i i think is part of the case and there's such an emphasis in this one of referencing the experience of Abraham you know the famine goes right. to Gerar uh, meets with King Abimelech um, who we're now told is of the Philistines mm-hmm. so is this the same Abimelech is this a different one um, regardless the narrative structure makes it feel like it's the same but the mention of the Philistines is important yeah, and we actually, uh, it does seem like it's the same Abimelech only because he has that same commander who has the same name, right. Phicol, his commander. So it's almost like they're trying to say, yes, this is the same Abimelech. So you're wondering how he could be fooled again by Isaac when his dad did apparently the same thing. Right. But that's, again, that's, that's what makes these stories folkloric or heroic rather than necessarily historical. A point is trying to be made here. Yeah, and and even in that, this this connection of the, the same king who's now moved on in some ways mm-hmm. to to be referenced with the Philistines is also now setting up a a dissonance with those neighbors yeah. that's going to carry pretty pretty long in Israel's tradition and that kind of starts here at this point um the the part of being redirected to the land that I will show you also is a, a huge connection with Abraham because that's how mm-hmm. Abraham goes from Ur to the the Levant. Well, sure. And in fact, when chapter 12, where we see the first sister-wife scene, that's exactly what happens right before that story. Mm-hmm. The difference here is that it, the, that covenantal language is embedded in the story, and the other two, it more surrounds those stories. And it, it yeah. could be the way we structure the Bible, too, where it's like maybe those stories were to go together more, but we tend to see it chopped up into chapters, right. so we don't catch the, the connection between those things. But covenantal language always goes along with the sister-wife story. Yep. And that that idea of land is going to be important yes. and the end of the story is going to reflect that with the wells. Yeah, and the wells is another fertility motif. But just like chapter 21, you have the, the same language is used, agar in garar. Mm-hmm. So meaning a gathering place, but a stranger or an alien gathering for hostility. Isaac's portrayed as having a lot with him and is going to leave with even more. Yeah. But then you have this uncertainty um where it's it's hinted that going to this land god's going to be with isaac and isaac's going to be blessed but it hasn't happened yet and this this possibly means like this could be a redaction back uh you know they're just trying to include the lesser emphasized isaac in the ancestral line like he didn't really get a story so we're going to throw this one in here um Because so far, you know, Isaac's just been described as a conduit of Abraham. He's not really a primary role player in his own right. Um, And, but he needs to receive this blessing in order for it to get to Jacob. Mm -hmm. 
So there's a chance that this story just exists to go, and this is how the blessing eventually went from Abraham to Jacob, because nobody really cares about Isaac. Yeah. But as part of that blessing, land's going to be involved, and that's going to fulfill this oath to to Abraham. And if Abraham's tribe is actually going to become a tribe that will carry on, um, this has to happen. And so you have to read uh, this this narrative, not just through the sister-wife motifs, but also through the covenantal language of chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17. You get similar language of like the stars and all nations gaining blessing through your offspring. Right. So it's trying to connect Isaac to that whole tradition. Mm-hmm. And then it brings up Abraham. It's like, this is Isaac's story and it keeps bringing up Abraham because this is possible this whole this whole movement forward because Abraham obeyed God's voice right. and, and this happens here, um, like verse four, verse five, uh, this connection being made, um, where he kept the charge, he followed the commandments and statutes and laws, or, or you could read that instructions. Mm-hmm. And so I get to the end of verse five and I go, did he? Did did Abraham do that? I don't know. It's very Deuteronomistic language, though. Um, and mm-hmm. so it could just be a clue into when it was written. But, um, yeah, it's kind of like, hmm, especially towards the end, when you get a lot of that emphasis on the wells being filled in and then redug. Maybe there's kind of a reset. Well, and another way we can read this is that this is a possible insertion. Yeah. Kind of trying to, like, clear Abraham's name promote that he was righteous because that becomes yes. a huge qualifier of him. And maybe in a Deuteronomistic way to emphasize the role of Torah, because when it says, you know, my statutes and my laws, that is literally says my Torah. Yeah. There's like a four. Oh, what is it? He says my, my commands, my statute, it says my, my charge, charge, my, my commandments, command, my, statutes, my, statutes, my, laws. my laws. And we see that in Deuteronomy and in first Kings. But, but the Torah doesn't actually exist yet. And so, but Torah right. uh, instructions as an idea is being included. So the, the, this could be a possible insertion. Also, when it says commandments, that's the word mitzvot, which maybe um, you've heard that or familiar with that. And that's sort of the actions that you follow in order to make the covenant happen, to repair the world, etc. Mm-hmm. So all that, that, that kind of looks like that's, there's an agenda there. But then Isaac settles, um, the whole wife thing happens. Children learn from their parents, I suppose. Um, but it's worth noting that this sister uh, connection is a much larger stretch than it was with Abraham. Oh, yeah. With Abraham, could actually kind of make the case. Yeah. Rebecca, you can't. No, um, it's an absolute lie. <laughs> but they, they go with it anyways. But what's different is this does not lead to the action of actually taking Rebecca. Right. Rebecca is not really taken here. Um, and so the story does get changed just a little bit. And whether that kind of reflects Rebecca's personality later, you know, or whether that's just yeah. about, I think that really, like you were saying, the story is really more about reflecting that Isaac is doing something that his father did. Mm-hmm. So it's not so important that that happens with Rebecca as it was with Sarah. The conflict in that case may have been about Sarah. In this case, it's more about saying Isaac looks like his dad. Well, and Isaac's going to look like his son because yeah. Rebecca's not taken, but the deceit is emphasized right? even more here. And then in verse eight, um, you know, you I think you had said something like, and then Abimelech finds out that it's not his sister, 
which was a nice way of saying, verse 8 literally says, (laughs) Abimelech looks out his window, which this all sounds like David, by the way. Yes, it does. And sees Isaac fondling his sister, who is actually his wife. So... You know, if you were if you were really going on the romantic love story of Rebecca and Isaac back in chapter twenty four, <laughs> like now 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 you see that progressing here, and uh, you know graphic novels can ensue. Mm-hmm. But um, then then in the confrontation of Abimelech, um, Isaac offers that same. I thought I would die yeah. if if you found out um, um, who she was. And now, again, this one's similar to the second sister-wife motif story is Abimelech confronts Isaac. Yeah. And the Gentile foreign king is the one kind of setting things straight for the patriarch here. And and also insinuates that Isaac uh, committed an act against his whole people. And someone, if someone might have laid with her, it would have brought guilt upon us again very similar to the last story of abimelech right and there's this fear of assam which can be translated guilt or sin and this sort of ancient view of appeasement that we have to avoid doing these certain things so that this this fear this terror this bad stuff's not going to happen to us Mm -hmm. and abimelech saying isaac tried to cause that as a response though because they're afraid it leads to Isaac's protection. So we would go like, well, why doesn't Abimelech just chop his head off and get him back? Because Isaac um, kind of has this power, this authority, this control because of what they're afraid of. And so the deceit and self-preservation actually works to his benefit. And, you know, it is at Rebecca's and Abimelech's expense. But Isaac doing this, possibly intentionally, leads to advancement. And that's the whole gar in garar, gathering for hostility. It it looks like Isaac and Abraham might have done this knowing that the outcome could definitely be in their favor. And the protection that's offered, it's not just um, so that no one can touch his wife. It's not just, well, now we know that she's not your sister, she's your wife, so we we won't try to do anything. It's also protection for him. So this is bigger than just some sort of romantic ambiguity. Absolutely. That's, you know, the idea of it's not just about, it's like the people are standing in symbolically for things. And again, here you're talking about land and wells. And so it's not just about protecting the wife, but protecting all that that represents, land, wells, fertility, all the things that, you know, go along with that idea of building wealth. And and if if Isaac is part of a powerful tribe, so, Mm -hmm. you know, early Israel is being portrayed with a lot of power here. Well, he's going to be able to, to utilize this to his advantage. And uh, another part of this is Abimelech responds with generosity. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like the generosity that wasn't offered by Saddam and Gomorrah, but it's an outsider. So here's another example in Genesis of people outside of the covenant actually embodying the covenant. Yeah, it's funny. It's it's kind of that we're going to give you something to get rid of you. It makes me think of Exodus where it's like you take all that stuff, the gold, the silver, mm-hmm. and go. Um, 
kind of one of the things that, and it may have been Susan Nittich, I can't remember, but some people feel that these might be ancient Near Eastern folkloric tales. So the, the idea of the sister wife story may not be specific to Genesis, but sure. what's happening here is like they're being retold and they kind of symboli- symbolically sort of expand the theological idea about Yahweh and then Yahweh's relationship to Israel. So you've got the you know sojourn in a foreign land. You've got the threat to the matriarch, which maybe is like a threat to Israel as the you know the bride or the wife of God. And then this wealth or status is acquired against all odds, you know. Mm-hmm. And so there's always that sense of um, promise given, promise rescued, promise restored, maybe yeah. kind of a theme that we see and, here. And the idea that early Israel here, you know, second into the generations. Um, is able to have power over an established kingdom. Sure. It's kind of going like, see, look, Israel is a big deal, even mm-hmm. even though they, they never actually were. And they never did. And yet they survived somehow. And maybe yeah. that's that whole trickery underdog. They, they love that underdog story. And I think that's why. I think it has a lot to do with their own history as a people who were always kind of the little guy. And yet somehow they managed to survive when some of these cultures fell and we didn't even know they existed for you know hundreds of years. So. Yeah. Now, this is going to now bring up a, uh, another, another component to this conversation. And I often hear people talk about kind of defending wealth accumulation of like, but look what happened to Abraham. He was blessed and had a lot of stuff. And so therefore, I mean, this was one of the huge components of um, Protestantism and um, the, the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution is having wealth as a sign that God favors you. Mm-hmm. And see, look, it happened with Abraham, it happened with Isaac. In verse 12, we find out Isaac settles there, and then he sows, he reaps, a hundredfold produces, and he becomes rich as a result of this motif. But it's worth pointing out that in all these situations, they don't necessarily portray the wealth accumulation positively, right? Abraham is very wealthy, but it never plays a role in the good thing unfolding in the narrative. Right. And then here, you know, another questionable situation, Isaac finds wealth and not one time from here will it implicate the covenant. So Abraham's adherence and that was brought up at the beginning of this chapter. His adherence to to God is what brought the covenant to happen. The wealth's never brought up. And then even in uh, you know Rebecca's story, Rebecca was already in on the hospitable act. The wealthy gifts were an afterthought. Yeah. And so as um, as you see the uh, these ideas, I think we tend to connect them and go. See, they obeyed and then they got wealthy. And instead it's they obeyed and the covenant continued. And then they did this other stuff that was kind of shady and they mm-hmm. got wealthy. And those are two different things. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to make a causation there that doesn't exist. It's, you well, know. and even there's the line here and the Lord blessed him and the man became rich. You could look at that as cause and effect mm-hmm. or you could just look at it as a conjunction, a simple one mm-hmm. of uh, the Lord blessed him. He also became wealthy, and those are different things. Yeah. But it's worth considering, and that's going to continue to come up um, as well. This does, however, lead to the Philistines envying Isaac. Mm-hmm. And now the presentation of Isaac in the covenant, it brings in this Philistine narrative that's going to last into the book of Samuel. You know, we're, we're going to be reading about these folks. Um, and it's a group we haven't really met yet, but... 
it's seriously going to foreshadow one of the largest conflicts uh, for, for, for Israel. Um, and then, then in verse 15, now you get this insertion about the wells. Yeah. They had apparently filled up the ones Abraham had made. Right. Um, that would be an act of war. They're destroying supply lines. That's one way you can look at that. Okay. Um, but then the picture here is of Isaac, who's partly, you know, partly because he's inheriting Abraham's stuff and everything was just given to him because it wasn't given to his brothers. Um, and now he's accruing his own stuff. He's become like his own clan. And this is the dynamic of, you know, why does Abimelech ask him to leave? And and I think it has more to do with the, the I'll call it a nation state conflict mm-hmm. more than just personal animosity between the two. And then that comes back now to the blessing part. Now Isaac gets blessed. But if you remember at the beginning of the chapter, I, Adonai was already going to bless him the whole time. That was part of the covenant. Right. I think this story portrays Isaac getting this blessing in a questionable way. At the same time, Isaac is still supposed to do something with the blessing, right? If you remember Genesis oh, sure. 12, mm-hmm. supposed to bless the world. Here he is in the midst of Gentiles, and his blessing is contained so much so that it leads to this almost war. Yeah, there's problems. Folks. So th- I don't think this is a positive portrayal, but the covenant exists regardless of the decisions that Isaac makes. And, and we'll talk more about um, why that is important in next next episode. But then, just like Abraham, Isaac now resettles that area, redigs the wells, gives them their previous names, which is a way of right. like literally reclaiming that land. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about the wells either. It, the actual water, it would be important, especially oh, in this area. Sure. But the the wells symbolize several things. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, they, they symbolize um, their markers of the ancestry. Um, so they, they do give claim to land and they mark the history and justifying who owns that land and, and how they came to have it right. and the narrative that led up to that point. But the, the wells also brings up these these themes of fertility and mm-hmm. um again i think these are totally symbolic the very fact that at the very end of this as soon as he resolves these disputes with abimelech that very day it says his servants come up and say oh we found water and my way of saying i think that's almost symbolically saying oh rebecca's pregnant now mm. i mean it's like it, it it's definitely that sense of this fertility these wells represent that idea of this covenant's going to continue. These children are for sure going to happen. And and that the the symbolically with um, with ancestors mm-hmm. being born, legacy continuing, but then also with uh, claim to the land. Right. And those are the two promises that are part of the covenant. Mm-hmm. Um, but this it's also worth noting because of the Philistine part. You know, they didn't have to include that. Right, and, and they didn't make any reference to the Philistines the last time we met Abimelech. But now Abimelech has grown, like even uh, Fecal is described more as a commander than just a, a military advisor at this yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but these quarrels with the whales, so quarreling literally means to strive against, and it implies like physical, like grappling and rebuking at the same time. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and as a result of this conflict, now Isaac has room. Uh, he ends up traveling to Be'er Sheva, which just means place of the covenant, a, a, a location we've seen again, and mm-hmm. we're going to continue to see. And then um, Adonai appears and claims, you know, that Isaac has congruity with Abraham. Yeah. Tells him, don't be afraid. The covenant will continue. Isaac's response is to build an altar and a well. Yeah. Um, and then this entour- military entourage revisits. And I, this part, it's, it's, it, it feels like Melchizedek. Um, Absolutely. Similar to that story mm-hmm. in Genesis mm-hmm. 14. Because Abimelech and his military entourage claim that Adonai has been with Isaac. The outsiders are telling sure. Isaac this this information. Yeah, and it's just like in, in, we're going back to chapter 12. Uh, we see covenant. We see sister wife story. Um, dispute with Lot over land. The herders were fighting with one another. And then suddenly we get that story about the Kozadek. So mm-hmm. it's like this is kind of totally retelling that story in a different way. So Isaac who has kind of been subversively accruing wealth, mm-hmm. hasn't really been as focused on the covenantal blessing and his role in that is now told by these foreign Gentile pagan rulers, hey, your, your God is with you. Um, your God has blessed you. You are now the blessed of Adonai, they say. Um, and then they call a truce, they exchange oaths. And then, as you said, the wells produce water. And they call that an oath or a covenant. It could be the mm-hmm. same word. So sure. these wells, the land, the blessing, um, the fertility, it, it all surrounds this narrative of what's going on um, in Gerar with the Philistines um, and, and with these wells. Yeah. But then the chapter ends by making us all go, wait, this wasn't about Isaac at all. <laughs> yes. Because you get two verses, uh, really just a, a brief line um, about Esau. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Biri the Hittite. And Basimath looks like base math to me. And so I don't really know how to say that one. Uh, daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And so now we're connected right back to where we were of this conflict with Esau and Jacob. We know Jacob yeah. is going to win at the end of this, but we don't know how yet. Mm-hmm. And we find out that Esau has done something that in Genesis 24, when Isaac was going to get married, was a huge no-no. Absolutely. And it was marrying outside of the clan. And not only that, but he married two Hittites. Right which the Hittites are coming out of this period as a dominant power on decline. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they still carry a lot more notoriety than, you know, say the Philistines at this time or um, even, even well, Abraham. Even Edomites maybe. In, yeah. Edomites too. Yeah. And so here Esau is now connected with the Gentiles. Yep. He's married out there. And we're told this makes life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And that's going to set up what's going to happen next with uh, the blessing, the covenantal blessing, and the dissonance between Jacob and Esau. Mm -hmm.